before I get started, <coughs> let me let you know I'm struggling with my voice this week, so just pretend I'm a different guest preacher, and, and maybe he'll be better than your usual one. I do want to let you know that last week I mentioned that we lost uh, Dwight Link uh, about a little over a week ago, and Dwight's service will be tomorrow uh, morning in this uh, sanctuary at about 11, at 11 a.m., so you can join us there if you'd like to help us celebrate Dwight's life. I'll probably do that a lot. But most of you know my dad uh, was a pastor for some 60 years. In the churches I grew up in, we had Sunday night church. So we had Sunday morning church and we had Sunday night church. And as you might be able to imagine, as a 10 or 12-year-old boy, Sunday night church was not exactly one of my favorite things. For one thing, you had to sometimes miss the very end of a great football game you were watching on a Sunday afternoon. And you also sometimes had to miss a favorite show like Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. Remember that, anybody? Marlon Perkins. We used to watch that every Sunday afternoon, and then we had to go to church, Sunday night church. It was also hard to stay awake in Sunday night church for us when we were young, and it was really bad form for the pastor's kids to fall asleep in church. So my mom was quite vigilant about keeping us awake, and I learned a secret with my brother, and you can use this today if you need it, that the best way to keep from falling asleep in church is to look around and find somebody else starting to fall asleep. Doing the old head bob, and it's so funny, it keeps you awake. So feel free to use that uh, this morning. Well, one night in uh, Sunday night church, uh, a lady stood up to give what we call testimonies. We call them faith stories today. And uh, my dad often left space like that on Sunday nights. People stood up and talked about what God was doing in their lives. And the lady stood up right behind where my mom and my brother and I were sitting on that side of the sanctuary. And she was new to our church. I knew that because we had a small church. I knew everyone knew. And I don't remember much about what she said, but I do remember how she finished her faith or her testimony. She said, I know I have a heck of a lot of changing to do, but with God's help, I'm going to make those changes. Only she didn't say heck of a. <laughs> she said a word you're not supposed to say in church unless you're the preacher talking about a place no one wants to go where they die. And my brother and I were beside ourselves we're just trying to keep from giggling and getting mom's elbow and stuff. But, you know, looking back on that, this woman was brand new to the faith, brand new believer, brand new to the church. I think it might have been one of the most honest faith story testimonies I'd ever heard. And today we're going to dig into what that change looks like. As you know, we began a series from Romans chapter 8 a couple of weeks ago called The Greatest Chapter. Uh, last week we had a guest speaker, uh, Pastor John Kelly. If you didn't get a chance to hear uh, Pastor Kelly... Go back on YouTube, on Chapel Street's page, and listen. It was a wonderful, wonderful message, a powerful message. I hope you'll go back and make sure you hear it. But we began two weeks ago looking at two words from verse 1. Paul wrote, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Those two words. And I use the illustration of the bucket and the ball to illustrate, because Paul talks about us being in Christ. What he's saying is that when we put our faith in Christ, we are in Christ. That is, we, what is true of him becomes true of us. Where he goes, we go. Our lives are now hidden in Christ with him. And he goes on to explain that those who are in Christ have no condemnation. Uh, we have his righteousness that covers us and that we have new life, new identity, and new destiny. And we live, he says, by a new operating system the Holy Spirit. And that brings us to our passage today. We're going to begin in verse 5. So watch on the screens as I read. Paul writes, 
For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Now I'm going to explain in a minute what Paul means by flesh and spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, <coughs> excuse me, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Now, we are used to, um, these days, uh, looking at the world around us and the people around us and um, dividing everything into opposite categories. For example, uh, there are introverts and extroverts. How many of you would identify yourself as an introvert, basically? Okay, I'm kind of one of you. I'm perfectly happy by myself. I can entertain myself. I'm never bored with myself. You know, and you, so if you're an inter, uh, introvert, that, that's you. If you're an extrovert, you like to be around people, and uh, being by yourself is boring. Or you wave Republicans and Democrats. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. <laughs> we have Cubs and White Sox fans, and we have Brussels sprout lovers and Brussels sprout haters. How many of you are Brussels sprout lovers? You can eat Brussels sprouts. Okay. How many of you are haters? Okay. I'm a hater. Started when I was like six or seven years old. My mom would make, uh, make vegetables for us and insist that we eat our vegetables like a lot of our moms do, right? It's Mother's Day. But one time she made Brussels sprouts. And I knew just by smelling the Brussels sprouts, I could not eat the Brussels sprouts. I was only six or seven. But she insisted, eat your vegetables before you leave the table. I said, I can't eat those, mom. She says, eat your vegetables. I said, if I eat those, if I eat those things, I'm going to get sick. And I think she thought I was bluffing. So she insisted. So I obeyed. I ate one, and I got sick right on my plate, right on the table. And that experiment ended for all time. Never made me eat Brussels sprouts again. And since then, I've learned there's actually um, a genetic predisposition. I'm not making this up. You can look it up. There's a genetic predisposition some people have to the, a chemical in Brussels sprouts. So if you tell me, which many people do, no, if you had my Brussels sprouts, I, I, you'll like, I, no, 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 you can wrap them with bacon, you can wrap them with dark chocolate, I'm still gonna gag. I'm a Brussels sprout hater. Well, here Paul says there's only two kinds of people in the world. Those who live according to the spirit and those who live according to the flesh. Those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ. Now, when Paul uses the word flesh, he's using an ordinary Greek word for flesh, like the flesh in your body, but he's giving it a completely new meaning. It means not just our physical bodies, but it means our fallen and rebellious human nature. He's pointing to a, a comprehensive set of beliefs, values, and behavior that revolves around the desires of the self, of myself. And it's in fundamental opposition to God. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, Paul writes, The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness. 
We can, think, we can all think of people that we know who are like that. In Galatians 5, he goes deeper. He says, now the works of the flesh, the results of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you, as I warned before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, this list is interesting to me because we read uh, things like sexual immorality, idolatry, drunkenness, orgies. We go, yep, yep, that's works of the flesh right there. That's works of the flesh. We understand that. But we kind of skip over things like enmity, strife, divisions, envy, fits of anger. But Paul says those are in the same category. They are all results of living according to the flesh. Then he says there are those who walk according to the Spirit. Now here he's talking about those who put their faith in Christ, who received the promised gift of his Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 1, remember, Paul writes, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, (coughs) the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, that's Christ, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That's his promise. When you put your faith in Jesus, when you're in Christ, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. In Galatians, Paul summarizes what walking according to the Spirit looks like. What does it produce? Remember that list before of the flesh. But here he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now Paul's teaching us here that those of us who are believers were once in the flesh— once under condemnation, but now are in Christ without condemnation and are living according to the Spirit. Now, this is important to say. Even though we've been set free from the flesh, our sinful nature has not been totally eradicated. Our our fallen nature, our sinful nature, is still operating sort of in the background somewhere in our heart's and minds. But we're no longer slaves to that operating system. We're no longer slaves to the flesh. Let me give you an example. Uh, not long ago, I was driving somewhere. Uh, I had to merge onto the highway. And it was a busy time, lots of, lots of cars on the highway. So I, I was, had to sort of pick my spot when to accelerate and merge into traffic. So I saw a spot coming. I accelerated, and I, I, I wanted to make sure I didn't make that next guy coming slow down. You know how irritating that is someone pulls out right in front of you? So I, I accelerated fast to make sure I didn't make him slow down. But in doing so, I got a little bit closer to the car that was in front of me. Not real close, but like a couple car lengths. Not a big deal. But I, I glanced up, and the person driving the car in front of me gave me a one-finger salute. And in that moment, I I felt my old nature. I wanted to do something that was from the flesh. But I didn't. I didn't. I didn't do anything. I just kept driving. Eventually, I passed that person, glanced over, and it was like a 70-year-old lady. It was like somebody's grandma doing that. Okay, let's dig in. Paul talks about, first, the way of the flesh. Uh, When I was about a junior in college, my roommate Mike and I were chosen to be hall counselors, and they chose us. We had to go through interviews because we were uh, juniors. We were seen as responsible and mature. 
Um, one night toward the end of that year, we were um, hungry. Late at night, the only place to get food at, at, after midnight was our student union. So we decided to walk across campus uh, and get some food. And we, had to cut, we cut through the main academic building, which was always open, and it was the shortest way to get to the student union. And as we're walking down this hallway, uh, my roommate suddenly looks up, and he goes, you think I can touch the ceiling? Or ceiling tiles. And he was a swimmer. I was a basketball player. I didn't think he could jump that high. I said, no way. He proceeds to jump up, and he didn't just touch the ceiling. He punched a ceiling tile and broke right in half and fell on the floor. And then he looked at me like, I dare you. And I was like, you're on. Because I knew I could jump higher than him. So I jumped up, and I punched one. It broke, fell on the floor. We just laughed like no big deal. We kept on going, didn't think anything about it. Next morning, we <laughs> come back to our rooms about 10 in the morning, and there's a note taped to our door that the dean wanted to see us in his office. We're like, oh, busted. Somebody must have seen us. Who could have seen us at 1 in the morning? So we walk in the dean's office. He's waiting for us. He goes, what were you guys doing in the academic building at 1 in the morning? And we just confessed. Oh, we're sorry. It was so dumb. We shouldn't have done that. We shouldn't have broken the tile. We'll pay for the tile. She goes, you guys did it? He thought we saw who did it. Well, he let us off easy by just letting us pay for the damage because it could have been worse. Paul says, verse 5, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Paul here says three things about the way of the flesh. First, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Now the Greek word he uses here for to set your mind on, phroneo, is more than just thinking about something. It, it carries the meaning of a, a way of understanding oneself the world around you, and the behaviors that come from that. Sort of a comprehensive worldview to set your mind on something. Illustrate, so why did my friend and I break the ceiling tiles that night? Were we thinking about God? Were we thinking about what would please God? Were we thinking about what the, the maintenance person was going to have to clean up the mess we just made? Were we thinking about all the other students who were going to have to pay for that in their tuition? And that, well, no. If we were thinking at all, and there's a good argument to be made that we weren't, uh, we were thinking only of ourselves, right? It just seemed like a fun thing to do. We did it because we could. We did it because we wanted to, because it made us feel cool. That's what Paul means by the mind set on the flesh. A mind set on the flesh thinks wrongly about God. God doesn't exist. God doesn't care. Uh, God wants me to be happy. That's a more complicated argument, but that's not God's primary purpose in our lives. A mindset in the flesh thinks wrongly about ourselves. I'm in control of my life. I deserve what I want. I get to speak my truth. A mindset in the flesh is a mind or a person shaped more by our culture than by the Holy Spirit. A mindset on the flesh. Second, Paul says, to set the mind in the flesh is death. What does that mean? I've said before, I serve as an on-call chaplain at Del Nor, um, Northwestern Hospital, which means several weeks every year I'm on call, which means if someone has a need uh, in the evening or on weekends for my week, I get, get the call. And those calls are never good. Uh, about a year and a half ago or so, a couple of years ago, I got a call. Um, 
it was at night, and they told me that the patient had, <coughs> excuse me, had expired, that's how they say it on the phone, had expired in the ER, and the family requested a chaplain. So I get to the ER, head nurse tells me the patient was a 66 years old man who suffered a fatal heart attack. So I walk in the room and see the body of a very, very large man still lying on the examining table, covered up, still intubated from an era. Doctors were trying to save his life. Um, woman standing next to the bed, grieving, I assumed to be his wife, and it was his wife. And like I said, the body on the table was, was really large. Even lying down, I could tell this was a, maybe a 350-pound, 400-pound human being. And through her tears, the woman is weeping, and she's saying, how could this happen? How could this happen? How could this happen? Now, I'm not a doctor. It's not my purpose in the room. I'm a pastor. My role at that moment was not to try to answer her question directly with medical reasons uh, about the pathology and the various behavior patterns that could lead to heart attacks. That wasn't my purpose. My purpose was to pray for her, to care for her, and offer spiritual guidance. But the truth is, if a human being practices unhealthy habits long enough, a heart attack is not a surprise. Let me give you another story. A man came to see me once in my office, right over there, uh, and told me some of his story. Uh, he had been married three times, had children with all three of those women, and had recently had an affair with a work associate, and, which produced a pregnancy. His life, his finances, his relationships were in a complete mess. And he looked at me with a straight face and said, How, why is God doing this to me? Paul is saying that if we set our minds on the flesh, that is, if we assume wrong things about God, wrong things about ourselves, the inevitable result is spiritual death. Third thing, Paul says, the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. Verse 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile toward God, does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now the word hostile there is the word used for hated enemy. Now, what does it mean to be hostile toward God? A long time ago, in my seminary days, I was a student chaplain in a large Chicago hospital. I had to show up a couple times a week, and I was assigned to an oncology wing, which meant I had to walk in cold turkey into rooms where people I, of people I didn't know who were in various stages of treatment for cancer. One, one day, I went in, and the nurse said, you need to go to this such and such, 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 such a room. I walked in, and I, I immediately saw there was an elderly man lying on a bed, kind of a grayish tone to his skin, which I eventually came to see was final stages of cancer. Very, very sick. But as soon as I walked in the room, he, looked, he picked his head up and said, said, who the blank are you? I was kind of taken back, and I sort of mumbled through, I'm, I'm a student chaplain. I didn't get the word chaplain out until he said, I don't need a blankety-blank chaplain, and he cursed me. I was shocked, and I backed out of the room as fast as I could, and that memory now makes me sad because even though he was hostile toward me and toward God, he desperately needed a chaplain. Paul says, for the mindset is set in the flesh is hostile toward God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now you're saying, if you're thinking, wait a second. Are you saying that a person who is not a believer in Christ cannot do good things? No, that's not what I'm saying. It's not what Paul's saying. Certainly Non-believers can do good things, and they do all the time. What Paul is saying is that God is concerned much more about much more than the doing of good things. He's concerned about the state of our eternal souls, the condition of our souls, the location of our souls. 
So that even though a non-believer can do a good thing, and many good things, because they, because they are not in the Spirit, they cannot please God. Secondly, Paul says, teaches us about the way of the Spirit. That's the way of the flesh. Here's the way of the Spirit. Uh, years ago, I did a wedding for a young couple here at church, right in this room. Um, the husband was a brand new follower of Jesus. I mean, just months into his new life. Um, and uh, he was fully invested in learning and growing, very excited about his faith and so forth. And a couple of months after they were married, I visited him in his home and just to see how things were going. And he said, Pastor Brian, you know, the most amazing thing is happening. I don't really understand it. He said, you know, I told you uh, that I had a real anger problems in my life and he had been in all sorts of trouble, fist fights, if I got fired from jobs, lost relationships because he had a real anger problem. I said, yeah. He goes, well, recently people have been telling me that I'm not doing that as much anymore. Something happens at work, something happens at home, and I, 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 I don't act that way as much. And my wife tells me I'm much more patient than I used to be. I'm much more kind than I used to be. It's kind of strange. It's kind of weird. It's kind of crazy. I said, well, Tom, it's not really crazy. That's the Holy Spirit in you. He gave me this kind of puzzled look. He was brand new in his faith. So I did my best to explain uh, the role of the Holy Spirit in his life, and then I quoted from Galatians 5, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. And he interrupted me and went, that's so cool, he said. <laughs> I said, yes, it is. Verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind in the flesh is death, we've talked about that, but to set the mind in the Spirit is life and peace. Paul here says two things about the way of the Spirit. First, those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. It's the opposite of the flesh. Jesus referred to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of truth. So Paul is saying that the life of the believer, a follower of Christ, is shaped by the Spirit of truth. A mindset in the Spirit is shaped by the truth about God. God is holy. God is just. God is good. God is personal. A mindset in the Spirit is shaped by the truth about ourselves. We are not holy. We need to be made new again. A mindset in the Spirit is shaped by the truth about our new position in Christ, that we have new life, new identity, and new destiny. Second thing he says is the mindset in the Spirit is life and peace. And that's what my friend was experiencing, that his life was no longer a slave to his anger, to his flesh, to his rage, but rather the Spirit was working in him to produce peace and patience. And thirdly, in this passage, Paul talks about the indwelling Spirit. Verse 10, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness, and if the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Now the word used for dwell here means to inhabit, to make oneself at home. He's saying that when we come to faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit inhabits, begins to make his home in us. And when the Holy Spirit moves in, he wants to change things. He wants to move things around. Sometimes he just rearranges furniture. Sometimes he throws it out into the yard altogether. But he needs our permission to make those 
changes. My mom used to say um, that when she committed her life to Christ at age 19, she was utterly convinced that although she knew she needed to be saved, she knew she needed to be made right with God, she was pretty convinced that her life was never going to be fun anymore. No makeup, no dating, no dancing, no nothing. And she was, she was okay with that as long as she had Jesus. She eventually learned that she did not, that it was exactly the opposite, that Jesus gave her more than she could ever even imagine. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it what? More abundantly. That's what it means to be in the bucket. Secondly, it says, the indwelling spirit gives us the power of resurrection. The power of resurrection. If, verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, notice the role of the Holy Spirit in the resurrection. That may be a surprise to you. Dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now what does all that mean? In my college days, um, I had a friend named Charlie. We weren't close friends. We just lived on the same freshman hall. Um, but we were more like acquaintances. But I, what I did know about Charlie wasn't, wasn't good. Um, he liked to party. He drank. He smoked funny-smelling cigarettes. His girlfriend practically lived in his room. And he cussed a lot. Uh, in, many, in many ways, Charlie was kind of the guy that my parents warned me about before I went to school. We graduated, went on our way, and I never thought about Charlie again. At least not for about 15 years. About 15 years later, I was sitting at our kitchen table, leafing through my alumni magazine that I get like four times a year, just glancing at my class notes to see if anything was happening to people I once knew. And I saw his name. And this was a sentence that was in the class notes. It said, Charlie and his wife um, are preparing to begin their first term as Wy Wycliffe Bible translators. I, I stopped right there. I think I might have dropped the magazine, actually. I yelled for my wife, even though she didn't know me when I was in college. But this was my old classmate, the most profligate, profligate sinner I had known up to that time in my life, and he was a Bible translator? And then I remembered somehow that he was an English major, and it started to make a kind of weird sense. I eventually, it took me several years, but I eventually got into contact with Charlie, and we, began, we emailed back and forth, and I asked him a story. He told me a story. I shared some of my story. And then he ended the conversation with this line. He said, who would have ever thought that God could use a couple of schlubs like us. <laughs> I got the biggest kick out of that. And I just said, that's true, Charlie. But the point here is this. There's only one power in the universe who could turn my old friend Charlie into a Bible translator. There's only one power in the universe that can help you live and experience your new life in Christ. And it's the same power, Paul says, that raised Jesus from the dead. It's the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells in those who believe. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word today. Uh, thank you for this great chapter, so full of things we can barely scratch the surface. Remind us that when we put our faith in you, we are not only forgiven, but we are made new. And remind us that the Holy Spirit 
gives us the power, day by day, moment by moment, to live this new life. In your name we pray. Amen.